And now, weighing in out of the blue corner, Josh the Pong Thompson. 100% and on the other mic, he weighs in from the red corner, Big John McCarthy. John, we had a special guest on today. I'm, I was excited, you know, for this to happen. You made this all come about, and uh, Randy Couture talked to us. How do you think it went? Yeah, Randy is so logical about everything, and he, that's that's the way he was as a fighter. He's a logical person. He's uh, he doesn't get emotionally too high or emotionally too low, and he's he's been part of so many big things throughout his career. You know, but this is a guy that took a lot of chances. He gambled as far as I'm gambling on myself in this situation and did things at times when nobody else would do them. So it's just good to always have him, you know, able to give you a little bit of insight the way he looks at the world, what's going on, what's going on with the COVID virus, all this whole thing. He's, uh, he's one of those guys that will always be special to the sport of MMA. He's on my <laughs> Mount Rushmore, even though he's not on Chael's. Okay. <laughs> Chael blew it on that one. I wanted to ask him about it. I mean, you know, and he gave a lot of those guys credit. I mean, like, it must be nice because I asked him a couple of times about how, you know, the, to see the success that a lot of these guys have had that came from Team Quest, you know, because you had Dan, you had, you know, um, Tan, Evan Tanner, and you had um, Matt Lindland and himself, and, and then you had Nate Quarry and Chael and, you know, Robert Follis. And there was a lot of good guys that came out of that that gym up there in Oregon and and where they're at, you know, what they're doing now and how, what the success they're having or who, who they've helped groom along the way that are the next generation into the sport is pretty uh, remarkable. It is. And, you know, and one of the things, you know, I think it was our very first podcast, and you, you know, you brought up the, the Mount Rushmore and one of your picks was BJ Penn and a lot of people, oh, you can, you know, look yeah. at his record and you can look at Randy's record. And this is the whole thing when you're looking at these special people that were, part of the sport and have have helped direct the sport into you know where it's at now randy didn't have the greatest record but he he was absolutely a trendsetter in so many directions he was the first guy you know heavyweight champion then went to lightweight champion then went back and won the heavyweight championship again and he did so many things and he helped so many other people other fighters yeah. you know come along and get to a, a level that they would not have gotten to if they didn't have him as part of their background. And some of the ones are the ones you're talking about. You know, he's a special person. It was just great to have him on. Yeah, it's always great to talk, sit and talk with him. The last time we had seen him was in L.A. Uh, for the cyborg fight. They, he just so happened to be in town, and we all got together and had had dinner and food and stuff. And uh, just pleasant to be around. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's never like a... There's never the, he's nothing, he's nothing like me. So he's, <laughs> he's he, you know, he, he's, a, he's just, uh, even kill across the board. Very, very soft spoken, but speaks from the heart, but you know, and, uh, you know, and he just, he, he sees both sides. So when you're having a conversation with them, it's not like, oh, my way is this way. It's nice to engage in a conversation where it's not like I got you, you know, especially in this day and age. And uh, it's very pleasant conversation and it was great having him on, you know, and if you guys are listening to this, hope you guys enjoyed it. Randy, the natural couture is uh, coming up. All right, guys, you're here with Josh Thompson, Big John McCarthy, and we have a special guest today, Randy Couture. Thank you so much for coming on. I mean, during this time, there's not, you know, not a whole lot to talk about. So we wanted to pick your brain about all the stuff that's been going on with, you know, you and and what you think and your thoughts on on the sport. So, uh, Randy, uh, Big John was actually like, hey, maybe we should call up Randy and see what, what's going on. He, I mean, 
So here you are, buddy. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We got these problems. You got to bring in Captain America because it's got to be solved. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Uh, How's everything been going, brother? Been good, man. Three weeks on lockdown. You know, gym's been closed. Uh, You know, kind of going through the the pains of this whole thing with everybody else. It's been a bit strange, honestly. So you're going stir crazy like the rest of us. Exactly. The cabin fever has set in. <laughs> um, have you talked to your, like, cause you have, you own a huge facility. It's really big. Um, have you talked to your landlords or anything about working out uh, rent, any of that stuff? Uh, we reached out to them real early. Um, we actually were, were closed the gym two days before it got mandated by the state here mm-hmm. and the governor. We were just trying to be ahead of it. I anticipated what was going on and, um, we're applying for the PPP for our for our employees and our our uh, independent contractors, which yeah. most of our instructors yeah. are. Um, we're in the queue with the bank because everybody's applying Everybody at the same is. time. Yeah. Um, so uh, and you know we're we've already gone ahead and paid uh, the month of April to our employees. We took a six month average of their their income and paid them that average for the month of April. I mean they're all operating on margins and can't afford to have no pay come in for a yeah. whole month. I mean. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So, uh, but I mean, there's a, the entire country. In fact, there's a whole pl- bunch of places in the entire world that are in the same situation. Yeah. So, um, like California, like LA just extended it till May 15th. Uh, the Bay area is actually, they're not, they haven't said anything about lifting it yet, but they, they've only done it until May 3rd. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I think that the nationwide one is what May 1st, which is what, May 1st, and I think I heard rumors that, that uh, Nevada was trying to stay in line with the May 1st, but yep. who knows? It's changing almost daily. It's changing. So, yeah. I mean, the numbers yeah. are changing. You know, are we over the curve? Are we, have we lo- lowered the curve? What, what's really going on? Yeah. Trying to find any real information has been has been a real problem. Yeah. I the uh, Sorry, John. I'm going to ask all these questions. That's all right. I'm sorry. Just very, keep on going, dude. Very... I'm just going to sit here and listen. Yeah. That's all right. I just I'm just, you and just running, I'm just running away with it, man. Uh, yeah. I feel like Podcast Dave. <laughs> well, Podcast Dave doesn't pay attention. I'm very, I, I do pay attention. Um, no, I just, um, yeah, May 1st, I think, is what they're trying to go by here. The numbers, if you look at the media sources, but the problem is you can't because they're so up and down. It depends. One day they, they hate everybody. One day it's, you know, we're all going to die. And the next day, you know, uh, it's looking great. So it depends on, you know, where the revenue stream, I think, is coming in for them on that day. Um, uh, there's a lot of truth in that statement, especially yeah. at the end of that statement. Yes. So, I mean, like, it, you know, when they first came out, they had estimated 250,000 deaths probably by the time this thing was all done in the in the United States. Then they said 100, 100,000 deaths. And then, then that didn't that didn't go anywhere. And now we're, I think we're only, I think we're, what are we at now? Like 20,000, I think, in, in nationwide, 20,000 deaths. I mean, a little over 20. About two weeks, about a week ago, they said 60,000 deaths. We're estimated about 60,000 deaths. Now we're only at 20. I mean, I know it seems like we're at the, the curve and the, uh, kind of on the, the, we're plateaued right now, it seems like. And then we're potentially going down. Do you start looking at what, your state is doing versus what California is doing, or do you look at it nationwide? Well, I think you, you have to be careful. Obviously there's some hot spots. New York is a hot spot. New Jersey is a hot spot. Early on Washington state and California were hot spots. Uh, 
and, and they kind of set the bar for the rest mm-hmm. of the country. There are other places that are very minimal exposure. So yeah. you, you got to kind of start to analyze that and look at the big picture. You know, obviously those, those population centers are going to be hit harder. There's no way they're not going to be yeah. more contact, yeah. more exposure. So more people traveling in and out on a regular basis. So, I mean, that stands to reason. You think it's going to get as bad in Montana as it's going to get in New York? There's, there's just no way. Uh, you know, it's just not going to happen. So, um, I think you have to kind of take all of that with a grain of salt. Look at the big picture. Um, I don't know. It's 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 certainly historical. There's people, no no doubt about that. People in Montana and Wyoming have been social distancing since they were born there. You know, <laughs> so they, their nearest neighbor is yeah. probably a good mile, maybe two miles away at least. So it's pretty. It's yeah. pretty. Well, there's funny. a bunch of Sasquatches out there running around just laughing. Yeah, you know, like we've been doing this forever. <laughs> Nor- normally, Randy, you. You are basically, you're running around with your hair on fire. That's why you're bald, okay, <laughs> exactly. because it's burned all off. I mean, you're always doing something, going somewhere. And then you, I know the PFL had their season that they postponed right now. Do you have an idea if they even given you an idea of when they're looking to start back up or not even yet? I mean, obviously everything's in flux and in flow. They're playing it by year, but right now they're hoping to be back up and running with probably a shortened season by July. Uh, but all of these dates and things that we're talking about all affect that when this thing's open back up. I saw where Texas is talking about getting businesses back open and back up and running in that state and taking so they've got drive-through testing and a bunch of other things going on there, so they feel like they want to get their state back up and running. That's the first I've heard of somebody kind of bucking the system and and looking to try and open their businesses and and everything back up. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see what other states follow suit. I think there's certainly some of the other states that have not been hit as hard that, that aren't going to be as exposed or, or, or as problematic and, and can probably get things up and running and opened up sooner. And, uh, the longer this drags out, the worse it's going to be. The long, uh, longer this footprint for what's going on is going, to, is going to carry on. When do we just cut our well, – I mean, I know it sounds really bad to you say You're going to say this. cut our losses? Yeah. Really? That's what you're going to go I was with? just – I mean, it was, <laughs> it's going to sound really oh, bad. I was I I had, I had to rethink it as soon as the word cut came out of my mouth. When, I mean, real realistically, like when do when do you think is too when's too long is too long? Because I mean, once you get past I think another month, the economy will, it will take another two a year and a half two years for it to even start to look for a rebound. If we were to hit another month or two after this, if it went into June and July, we're looking at a lot. I mean, I don't even know if it it would we wouldn't be a recession; it'd be a depression at that point. You know, so yeah. like, how well, long? That's what everybody, how long I, is I think too that's long? That's what everybody's scared of, and and yeah. I think that uh, people are kind of waking up, looking at the big picture, looking at what really is going on. Mm-hmm. I think, thank, thankfully, we have such an amazing medical infrastructure in this country, and and still, you know, by the projections, going to be slammed, and in some cities, it certainly is. But uh, I think our curve, because we reacted quickly, and our our infrastructure is is so well in place. Uh, we've, we've handled this pretty well by, by what I can see and what I've read. Now, I, I think that's going to depend on who you ask. There are yeah. some that are going to point fingers and, and say that, no, we didn't react quickly enough. And But by the guidelines that who was putting out, and, and I think there's some culpability with the WHO here with who and what they were putting out and what their motives were early on, um, we responded fairly quickly. And I think that's showing in the numbers and why it's not as bad as they originally projected. 
Yeah, Major League Baseball had said that they were looking at having all their baseball games in Arizona because they have relatively no cases in Arizona. You know, it's it's very light there, and they said if they do open up, they'll they'll try to probably do just um, no fans for the first month or two. If that happens, like once we do open back up, what do you see with your gym happening as well? Because I have two gyms here. And so I start thinking to myself, when I open up, do you only allow, say, 20 people at a time in the gym for the first month? You know, I mean, then how do you have memberships? And it's a it's a really it's really hard to, to gauge any of that without any real information. You know, most of the testing has just come online in the last week, maybe week and a half if we're lucky. Uh, so we're starting to get more a bigger picture of real numbers. How many are infected? Obviously, the, the critical cases are, are well known because those are the folks that are looking at ICU and potentially need to progress to a ventilator and all this other stuff. But uh, it's, uh, I don't know, it's it's tough to say. And we're kind of all going on the fly and making the best decisions we can with the information at hand. Well, both of you guys have owned gyms. I own gyms. Uh, and John, who's the only smart one in the group that got rid of his. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it really, really is just one of these things that happens, and we're we're stuck going, man. As if the gym business wasn't hard enough, we're hit with this as it is, and then yeah. you know the the rent, the and then when you do come back, this is where everyone gathers. This is where everyone kind of sweats and yeah. leaves their mark everywhere. So it's. It's the shit. other part of the it's problem our, it's is our sanctuary. It's our sanctuary in yeah, a lot of ways. And it is. And it's it, sanctuary away. The other problem is, you know, whether, whether you want to say it's wrestling, jujitsu, MMA, none of them are what we call social distancing type of activities. No. Okay. <laughs> in fact, the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> makes it, it makes it tough. Higher risk for sure. So I let mean, me ask you this. We've been professions about- in the public eye and public life shaking hands, meeting people. I mean, I was in Ohio, and that was one of the first major events that got shut down was the Arnold Classic. A week later, I had to be in, in uh, New York City for our new chapter of MVP, Merging Vets and Players, yeah. Uh, yeah. right when the Westchester quarantine area was breaking out. And it was honestly a little weird to be in New York City and, and see it has slow and, and, you know, there was hardly any people around. It was really strange. And to walk in, we rode down the strip the other night on our motorcycles at nine o'clock at night to see what it was like. Literally vacant, a ghost town on the strip in Las Vegas. That's very, crazy. very strange. Wow. I almost want to go just to do that and just, you know, <laughs> just to just go to see and, it. just to see it, you know, stand in the middle of the road and take photos. Be like, uh, this, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Hey, do it for the gram, baby. Do it for the gram. I don't All know. Right, two, yeah. two questions for you. You had a health problem. You tried to foam roll out a heart attack, all right? <laughs> Which only goes to show how fucking intelligent you are. All right. I'll just roll this sucker out. How you feeling? Feeling great, man. Blood's uh blood's numbers are back down in. I've got to stay on top of the You're a little thinner now. Uh I, I it wasn't a lifestyle issue, but uh I, I don't definitely mean that. I mean your blood's thinner. You got that thick. Yes, my blood, blood is thinner. It's natural. They've got me on a statin. They've got me on a thinner. I'm going to have to stay on that because of the stint. They don't want anything sticking to that stint. I also have very naturally high hemoglobin and hematocrit levels. Um, those jumped up above normal, which is part of what led to, to the, the issue with the plaque in, in the one artery. And, and uh, now we know why you never got tired, you cheating bastard. I guess I was made I was made for this. I was made to be stacked and coagulate. <laughs> you work out with him and he just starts doing stuff and you're going, I'm getting tired, I'm getting tired. And boom, I'm down on the ground. And he's like, You got a problem. 
<laughs> Second is you have been very involved with MVP and, and veterans, and you've got your Couture Foundation and everything. Is there anything that you've seen that you guys have been able to do to keep those guys feeling good about themselves and out of problems? What have you been doing? Absolutely. We, we started that very first week of the quarantine. We started our virtual MVPs in all five chapters on Zoom. Uh, we're having 50 and 60 folks show up, putting them through a half-hour workout in their living rooms with our trainers, and then spending another hour you know, doing the huddle, doing, doing the – the peer-on-peer counseling and breakdown and keeping them socially connected when we have to stay physically distant from each other. And it's been very powerful. It's been very good. And, and to your comment earlier, Josh, doing that with our gym, my strength and conditioning coach, Gil Gordado, has been putting out videos every day, Got it. new training sessions, new things you can do in your home that are easy to keep our clients connected, working out, and at least functioning on some capacity. So... I think that's something a lot of other gyms have tried to implement as well. Yeah, we have a lot of the trainers that I have, they've actually, they do workouts out of their gym. So they just film and they basically just post them up on their social media and let, let anybody for it. So they just, they reach out to the, obviously the, um, the clients that we have normally and they say, Hey, I just posted a video and then they can go. So in every, you know, every, um, member has a has a trainer that they specifically like more so than the other ones so they normally follow that person on social media and end up doing their workouts they'll mix it up also too with other people because other gyms are now offering that as well like you were saying <clears throat> so yeah. when that happens they can actually start seeing what other trainers are doing as well and try to mix those all in together because we had dropped a couple yeah. uh podcast dave our producer here had him and i had done a couple workouts that we had put up on our on our cell you heard YouTube. him you made him do some push-ups. He got all sore. <laughs> you know those WWE guys. They don't. They don't know how to really work out. They just hope. They just always wish they looked like The Rock. <laughs> uh, to your point, John, uh, it's really a tough thing for a lot of these guys in transition. They're struggling with PTSD or TBI to be isolated. To, uh, that's the worst thing for them. Is that little voice, our crazy roommate? That little voice in our head starts to go nuts when we don't have those outlets those vents and that support system that we're used to having. So uh, that virtual thing has been a lot, I think a lifesaver for a lot of those guys. That's awesome. Glad to hear that. That voice, that voice in the head is sometimes louder in some people's head than the others, you know? And so I know we were there that day in, in, um, in, LA. LA. Yeah, you weren't there that night, but then I, we went there when we had Bellator there when Chris Cyborg fought. And I got a chance to sit in on the meeting and it kind of led the, uh, the the kickboxing portion of the workout. Everyone there is absolutely phenomenal. They had a bunch of great stories. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that this is what happens to people when they come home. You know what I mean? Like you just like you meet them, you talk to them and they they're like, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. And they're having a it's it's a real conversation you would have with anybody else. But then when you sit down in that huddle and have the have a, a real one on one conversation in a group setting and they just spill everything out and what they go through and the, the images that they see in their head, like when they sleep yeah. at night or when they're it's it's crazy to think that that's. That's a lot to handle for anybody, you know, and I, I can sit at home and think about it all I want. And, but to put it into perspective, you have to sit down with someone and especially in that group setting and hear what they actually go through and what he, what he or she visually sees, you know, in their mind, what they remember and what they recall. And it's a, it's something that bugs them every single night. And it's all just so we can live the, the dream that we're living now, you know, uh, and it's, it's, 
it w- it was it was a lot. It hit me it hit me a lot, and I was I didn't know what to expect. And I went in, I came out, and it was it was a different look on life, a different look on on you know on how on, on other people. How about you, Josh? How was your transition? I mean, you made a decision to walk away from the sport that you've been a part of for quite a long time. Obviously, this is filling a void and yeah. giving you some sort of a new purpose. I mean, what was that process and that that mindset like for you walking away from the sport? Well, as like with you, you started your gym. When did you start your gym? When you were done yet? Or did you have your gym before you were done? No, I've had my gym for 15 years now, um, but that was a big decision for me. I yeah. think probably one of the two biggest decisions in my life uh, – the first was getting out of the army, you yeah. know, at, at yeah. 25 years old, where I'd been pursuing that Olympic dream and and getting all my needs my needs met for my family and everything else through the military. Yeah. So getting out of the service to take college scholarship was a big decision for me. That was risky. So um, for, for I guess in some ways leaving leaving my coaching job and, and pursuing fighting full time, 100 percent, was another pretty risky proposition. You know, no guarantees there. Um, so. The same thing walking away from the sport. It took me a year to really come to terms with, was this the right time for me to walk away? And once I made that decision and walked away, I realized I'd done the right thing and I'd done it the right way. So, yeah, I didn't want to make any brash decisions, but I, I guess for me, I knew that I was when I when Strikeforce had gotten bought in front of the UFC and I was supposed to fight for the title. I was right when I fought Benson. I was actually opening my gym at that time. So during that camp, my gym was opening. It was one of the most stressful times of my life. and But I also knew as well that I was 36, 37 at the time. I also knew that I wasn't going to do it much longer. At 37 years old, you know that the UFC or any promotion is not going to promote you to be their champion for very long. And so I just... Or 47, 37, 47. <laughs> 37, 47. <laughs> you know? I just, I just knew. Like, it's almost like a running back when they hit 30. Less people were likely yeah. to spend the money on them. And I knew that. And they, you have to come to grips with that when the reality had set in that I wasn't, I wasn't going to be one of their top people that they helped promote because they kept offering me young, talented guys, you know, that were just breaking onto the scene that were exciting to watch. I knew that they they were trying not to try to get me beat, but they just wanted to try and see if I did lose. I lost to a new up and comer. So when you when the reality had set in, that's kind of what they were doing. The gym opening the gym was something that I knew that would generate revenue as long as I was here. And, you know, if you're not at your gym, money goes out the back door. You've got to be here as uh, much as possible. You've got to be looking over. You got to be shaking hands. You got to be socially. You have to be social with everybody that's no in your facility. Hands. No more no shaking more. hands. No, no more shaking hands. Just bump that Maybe an elbow. That's it. So when that when all that happened, I just knew that this was another stream of uh, revenue that I could come to have come in to help supplement what I was making from fighting. Now that was the other thing. It's never going to be the amount of money we made fighting. It's not going to be that. It's like a professional athlete, right? A NFL player. When they get out, they pretty a lot of them are not going to be as blessed like as Herschel. Herschel makes really good money doing with his chicken company and his linen company, and you know a lot of the, some of the other guys are, but not all of them have been have been that successful. A lot of them end up broke, you know, and they've spent millions. And so when I start thinking about these guys, these professional athletes, baseball players, football players, when they've lost as much money as they've lost, it lets me know that 
what I've made in my career will definitely go if I'm not, if I'm not wise with it. So I just can't, I, as the gym was here, I just used that as, as soon as I, I had lost my fight to Benson, I focused a lot on the gym, took the fights when they came in and just spent a lot of time and energy, you know, with my, with the, with the uh, members here at the gym and tried to build that up. So that was bringing me in an income. I think as long as we know that their next paycheck is coming in, I think mentally we feel uh, safe about that for the military though, for, Vets that get out, they're lost. They don't know what else to do. And I think had I not had the gym to rely back on, that would have been something I would have been twiddling my thumbs going through depression probably. But I opened the gym. Worst decision I ever made was opening the gym. But it was, it gave me something to focus my energy back on that generated some sort of revenue. Made it easier yeah. for me to make so that, that decision. Became, that time. became your new purpose and your new yes. drive. And yep. I mean, John, you walked yep. away from law enforcement after a very, very long time. That had to been an interesting transition for you. I know you had refing your gym and all the other things to focus your energy on, but still, that was a huge part of your identity for a big part of your life. That was the greatest moment that I ever had getting away from it, man. <laughs> you know, I, I, always, I always used, I always looked at the LAPD was, it was my safety net because if everything else went away, I still had that job and mm. I enjoyed the job. I enjoyed what I did. I, I got to play every day. So mine, you know, near the end of my career, I was, I would only go out on the street once a month and uh, I got to play, you know, teaching people the whole time. So I had a great job, but you know, when you, when you walk away from something, it's Josh says something that's very true. You've got to give up your, your old life to gain a new one and you've got to give up that past life. And so, you know, if you're the fighter, you've got to find something that's going to replace what you're passionate about. And if you can find that thing, yeah, well, if you can find that thing, then you're going to make it because you take that same energy. And the reason that both of you were successful is you're both hard workers and you don't give in. You don't give up. If something gets in your way, I find a way over, around or through that obstacle. You know what? That is that mentality will make you a winner. As long as you're willing to work hard and you have that type of mentality, I don't care what it is you decide to do, you're going to be a winner. But you have to put that same thought process, that same energy, and that same time into becoming that new life that you put into that old one. I think it comes down to, though, is finding that something, though. That's really what it is. Like, if you don't, that's the hardest part. When they get done, they don't know what else to do. And then they don't know if they're just spinning their wheels and they don't want to work for somebody else because they haven't been able to. I'm talking about athletes. As far as the vets, they come back and they just don't know. They don't know any, like, they don't, they don't, the the world has changed since they left, probably. You know, a year and a year and a half, two years ago, when they got deployed or whenever it was they were gone, they've been living a different life that was everything was there available to them. They come out. It's like, okay, where do I live? Where's the grocery store? How do I shop? People now are just tapping credit cards before when they used to swipe them. Like everything is new. You know, like little things like that make a big difference. They feel lost. They get out, they feel lost. What do you mean? What's this thing called social media? They don't know these things. A lot of these guys don't. They come out. I don't know what they are either. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the the one thing that, that, you know, I think Jay Glazer tapped in with MVP is it was that camaraderie mm-hmm. it is what yeah, makes it's what makes the military what it is is you're not getting paid crap but you yeah. have a camaraderie with those other brothers and sisters yeah. out there that you say i will die for you and that goes you know it's the same thing that happened you know was we, with mine and lapd is i i when i left people ask me all the time do you miss it and i go dude 
I miss the clowns. I don't yep. miss the circus. And that's exactly. the thing. That's the thing. It's the people that make things special and makes you want to be there. Why do you want to go back to Afghanistan and do that? Because it's the people that are there. I believe in those yeah. people. They believe in me. And it's a yeah. camaraderie that you cannot get anywhere else. And you, if you can find that way, and I think that's what MVP has been doing for these guys, you find that way to find that simple thing called camaraderie, brotherhood. We give them, we give them their squad back. We give them that locker room that's back. It. That's what I miss, my training partners. Yeah. The time I spent with those guys sweating and bleeding and seeing on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, and for me, the biggest thing from fighting was that was the impetus for my high school buddies, my college buddies, my army buddies to all come to the fights wherever they were. I would see those guys and reconnect with those. That's the only thing I miss about it. Yeah. Plus, there was a simplicity, a regularity. I wasn't running around. I was at home training every day, eating, you know, eating well and all those things. Um, there, there was that regularity, but it's those guys. That's the part I miss. And I think that's the part that MVP tries to get back. That's that little piece of their identity and that group of that support system. That's the same as the military. You know what your daily schedule is when you're an athlete. You know, okay, I can't have practice at this time. I'm going to get up, go for a run and have breakfast. And then after that, I'm going to get a little bit of a nap. Then I'm going to go to training, training, lunch, shower, do all these things, come back, hit mitts. There's it. Like you said, it's a routine. It's, Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's daily scheduled, but like it's 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 mindless. We don't have to worry about what we're gonna do next because we already know. We were ta- we were on a group text from all the people from the production, and they said, "Yeah, it's it's Tuesday." I'm like, "Oh, it's a uh, wrestling day." In my mind, for the last yeah, couple of years, yeah. I didn't know what Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I just knew, okay, today is wrestling day. Today is sparring day. Right after you said that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, damn it. You know what I mean? But like, we have sparring Monday, Tuesday's wrestling, sparring Wednesday, you know, Thursday, jujitsu. Like, you have, that's how your mind, I think, for years, that's how athletes, you know, they work. And I'm sure yeah. it's the same for the people in the military. Today's shooting day. Today's, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, you know. And so they have in their mind what they're going to probably do that day like we got to get better at this this day not a lot of people think of the dates like oh i don't have to write a check today and today's what april you know what i mean so the the daily routine and the daily grind and it's mindless just to get up and go hey okay today this is what i'm doing and that's gone once once you're out of the military once you're not an athlete anymore and you have to find things to to fill your time and that's when that's when all the trouble happens you know, it's no different. There's than also a big issue, I think, with adrenaline. I mean, there's nothing. You're never more alive than walking out of that tunnel. You're never more alive than you are on a battlefield, oddly enough, or out on that football field. There's this whole adrenaline thing that becomes a part of your existence, too. And now what? Now you're just a regular human. That think- That's tough for guys to swallow. I think that's a big reason why I, I don't I can't I don't know about foot John, but like he were in the center of the cage, always refing, and it just there is there's got to be some sort of adrenaline there. You know, he makes Absolutely. it he ma- makes it seem so easy, right? But it's like there's, there's a lot that goes there's a lot that goes into it. It's I you know I was always I, just trying not to screw up, man. That's your adrenaline. <laughs> but we've the three of us have been really lucky and blessed. The fact that like we can sit cage side, call fights. That's a little bit of, that to me is an adrenaline rush. You get to see the ups and downs of what a fighter goes through right there at the cage. I mean, people pay thousands of dollars to sit cage side to watch fights, you know, and we're doing it every time there's a show and we're doing it for, I mean, we're actually getting paid to do it, not just doing it for free. We're doing it because we get paid and it's not, and we love it. So I, that's kind of like another way of fulfilling that adrenaline rush of being on the football field or being on the battlefield and, 
you know, and handling weapons or, you know, winning a gold medal, whatever it is, it gives you that void uh, versus getting hit. Cause I walk past the cage. Now I tell John this all the time. I walk past the cage now and I hear those guys getting hit and I'm like, yeah, that doesn't even sound fun. Fuck that. <laughs> I'm good. No, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do a course and I do it once a year and I, I do it now at Randy's gym in Las Vegas. July, right? In July is when I, it, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe, you know, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, you know. yeah. But one of the things, you know, I get people all the time talking about, you know, how much money do you make? You know, and it's like, dude, you know, you're not going to make money doing this. This is yeah. not, that's not what it is. And I, but I tell them all the time is, Hey, this is, this is what you got to look at. And this is the way I always looked at it. I get to walk into some of the greatest arenas oh, yeah. man has ever had. And I get Ooh. to walk past the security and I get to walk down towards this cage that's down at the floor. I said, and I get to go down there. No one stops me. I get to go in the back into the locker rooms. And I get to talk to fighters and I get to do all these things. And it's priceless yep. because once it's gone, you'll realize what you lost. And I tell guys this all the time and, and guys that are either inspectors, judges, referees, fighters, trainers. I tell them all, hey, when it's gone, you're going to know it. You're going to miss it. Because it's okay. just priceless. You can't put a price on it. And it's something that just makes it to where you go, I love what I do. And that's, you know, the part you're talking about, you know, that adrenaline rush. And you're going to get that no matter who you are. Yeah, you got to think yeah. when you go to the forum and you walk down that long um, trucking entryway, it's got all the names of the people that have played all there on the wall. Things. And you're thinking all to yourself... This is crazy to think that I'm walking down this thing and no one's, they've just checked my ID and I'm just walking right in. Not a big deal. Everyone's saying hi. And you're like, man, Bon Jovi's been here. Motley Crue's been here. The Rolling Stones Muhammad have been Ali's here. Been Muhammad there. Ali's there. Like the Lakers wow. played. Like you're thinking to yourself, all these people have walked this same hall. It's crazy. You know, when you start putting it in perspective that way and how lucky and blessed we are. Yeah. So I think about it all the time on how, <clears throat> how fortunate we are to be living this life. And it's, it's great. I mean, like I said, but the, the ultimate thing is, is giving them another outlet that they feel comfortable with living. And I think that's the hardest part because if, if I didn't have my gym, I don't, I really would have, I probably wouldn't have retired. I'd still be trying to fight, trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do after my, my grandfather always told me, don't quit one job until you have another one. So I was thinking to myself like, Hey, you know, you can't, you, you can't just quit and then go try and find another job. You need to keep your job, even yeah. though might, if you're miserable or not, Okay, is keep it until you find another one. Then, okay, that one can go. You've got to always make sure you have a revenue stream coming in. Like, you know, another good thing is just don't spend the money you don't have. You can't afford to buy it cash. You don't need it. You know, I mean, outside of your house, I mean, that was like, those are those two lessons that I think I took with me for for my, my whole life. And that helped me get to the point where I didn't want to, I never wanted to be searching for what, what I was going to do next. I just wanted to have it, be comfortable with doing it and be, and be content, you know, content. And then that grows into something else, hopefully. So... Randy, you were a pioneer. UFC 13 was your first show. So that yeah. shows how freaking old you are because you're as old as me. On both. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, because you were there too, John. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, was, I wasn't going to bring that part up. I was going to say I was a kid watching it on TV, and boy, I really enjoyed watching yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> But then I get that all the time. I've been watching you my whole life. Oh, oh, dude. Dude, I, <laughs> since, I've been watching you since I was five years old. Oh, but yeah. you know, you spanned an incredible amount of time. You fought for a lot of different, you know, places and people. You know, the UFC was your big thing. What is it that you see as the difference between the way obviously 
it started and what we're seeing now. Is there anything that you look at and you go, man, here's what I see is the big, the big change. Well, I mean, obviously the crowds, the fan base, uh, the exposure on, on, uh, bigger platforms uh, around the globe is, is way bigger. UFC 13 was one of the last pay-per-views for a while there. I think they went to an online model. That was the only place you could find the sport because of the, the McCain backlash and all the other stuff going on back then. Uh, now we're, you know, we're literally on the ticker and ESPN and they're cordoning off half of the arena just for the weigh-ins. It's a completely different animal now than it was back then. Uh, I think running towards regulation, creating unified rules, uh, a scoring system that most people can understand and, and is accurate most of the time, uh, all are things that help help the sport grow the way it has as the combative sport for this generation. I think the one thing that needs to be addressed, and that maybe it's the elephant in the room, is that the, the fighters need to get a, a, a fair share of the pie. Most of the promoters are still using a flawed system where the promoter and the sanctioning body are the same guy. It's way too much power. These contracts are horrible. There is no other professional sport in our society where 13 to 15% of the proceeds are going to the athletes actually performing in those shows. Yeah. I mean, it's at least 50% in football and most of the other professional sports out there. Uh, boxing is more like 60 80. to 70%. Closer to 80. Sometimes 80, depending on who's on that card. So. Yeah. I think that's the one area where we have some room to do as athletes coming together. Why don't we have a, like a players association, a fighters association, so we can collective bargain and get our fair share, even as independent contractors. I think these are all things that our sport needs to embrace. And we as fighters need to educate ourselves on the system and why, why are we not making the kind of Floyd Mayweather money or Conor McGregor money who, who goes into one boxing match and literally made more than, he's ever probably going to make in MMA. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy. And, and so there's a disparaging problem there in our sport. And I think it's as popular as it's, I mean, it's going to continue to grow. I don't think it's going to fade off or go away. It, it's, it's way too entrenched in our society. Uh, so, you know, but I think yeah, the fighters need to organize, educate themselves and come together to, to get their fair share of what they're putting into it because they're putting their butts on the line on a regular and they're not getting a fair share, in my opinion. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Those are the people that are going to turn and say, well, because you only get one fight like Floyd Mayweather and Connor, you don't get, you get other fights, sure, but those those other fights, are they're not really mainstream fights. You know, there may be one or two people you've heard of but not really watched fight. You're only getting one fight. That's why those top two guys, Mayweather and Conor, or whoever else, get the big fair share. If MMA went to that program, maybe they would make more money. Just one main event and then oh, a bunch of nobody. Look at what those other boxers on those cards are making. They're still yeah. making more than our mid-tier, lower-tier yeah. fighters in yeah. MMA. No, I mean, their pay scale is much different and much bigger than ours. Now, they're... they're they, the Ali Act that was implemented in 96 kind of separated those powers, created transparency in the contracts and the way promoters had to operate because of guys like Don King and in some ways Aram. The, the fighters were being taken advantage of in boxing for a long, long time. And it was, took the fighters coming together to change that part of their sport and allow things like Ali and, and Mayweather and some of these other guys that made tons and tons of money. Now, some of those guys didn't take care of it, just like you were talking about earlier. And, you know, they, they, they let that stuff go. They're, 
we have this mentality that it'll never happen to us. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what makes us good. It makes us good at walking up in that cage and doing what we do because we there is an air of invincibility in that mindset. And I think sometimes that can be our, our worst enemy too, our own detriment. Do you look at us like, I feel like because MMA is, even though we say it's a relatively new sport, what's it been, 26 years now? It's been yep. 25, 26, I think 26 years. Um, it still is a relatively new sport when you consider like boxing and, and other sports. But do you feel, I kind of feel like we're in that women's, U.S. national team conversation argument where they're selling out arenas but not getting a big fair share of the pie. That's where the, where the MMA fighters are at, the same position. They're the ones putting in all the the fans are actually hundreds of thousands of fans are coming to their events and, and their games and they're not getting, that's where they're, make, they're filed for a claim for them to get paid equally as much as the men or whatever it is. And I feel like the MMA fighters are kind of a little bit on that same page because it is relatively new. We are fighters are selling out arenas, but they're not really getting compensated for it. That's interesting. I, I would like to see the math. Are you talking about women's NBA or which women's No, no, women's, women's, women's U.S. Women's soccer. soccer team. U.S. Oh, women's soccer. Okay, women's soccer. Okay, yeah, the U.S. Women, the U.S. national you gotta, team. You got to look at women's soccer sells out more than as far as the men's soccer team, U.S. men's soccer team. The women's is more popular, makes more money, but they get paid less. And I, that's I, I, that's all I watch. When I, when I watch, yeah, when yeah, I watch yeah, the yeah. U.S. teams, I, I just watch them. They don't flop on the ground. Yeah, that's very true. They don't take. No, no, they're not all. They're all. They don't all look like LeBron out there every time he gets oh, bumped. <laughs> the guy's too. Kills me. LeBron, two hundred eighty-five pounds, and I swear, he sometimes a, a hand goes by his face and he's on the ground. You're like, didn't even hit you. Oh, he just grazed my nose. No, it's, it was one of those, man. No, they, 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 they sell out. They sell out. You know, hundred thousand seat arenas. They've you know multiple time gold medalists. I mean, this team is amazing, and they're they just filed a suit against the U.S. Uh, uh, soccer league basically saying that they want to be compensated as if like the men they're not over and beyond but they want to be compensated equal to with the men and they're the ones selling out the arenas i feel like with the fighters it's very much similar to that these guys are not <clears throat> if you were to make an argument you could say that it'd be kind of on the same wavelength but it's just because we're a relatively new sport we haven't got into it i don't know it's just it's a conversation to be had i think in that situation certainly an, an interesting analogy for, for sure i can't because i can't say the same about WNBA because they don't sell out the, the you know the arenas they don't oh, that's why i was asking no. I, I didn't catch the soccer part i just heard yeah. women's sports and... no 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 yeah, i mean because not all, not all women so it wasn't your bad hearing it was josh's bad questioning oh yeah i, I think i, I, I think i said that, u.s man. national team is what yeah. i said yeah i think yes, i didn't say is. okay i said u.s national <laughs> team yeah but yeah i think because the, the WNBA they're not selling out arenas they're you know a lot of the other women's sports are not doing as well as the women's soccer is and so i think the conversation should be had something similar in those two Two things. There's a conversation, like I said, to be had in that type of situation. Yeah, yeah. it opens up some interesting questions. You bet. With the situation that uh, just occurred with UFC 249 getting closed down, do you have any thoughts on? Were, were you for them trying to make that show happen, or do you think, man, they're not the right time? How, what were you thinking? I mean, I had such mixed feelings because you start balancing how much of this is hype. I mean, we start talking about the real numbers and. Look at the flu that happens every year. Oh, yeah. So many other yeah. things and ways that people die. And where does this register on that same scale? And we're making such a huge deal and literally tanking our economy on a worldwide level over it. And at the same time, everybody else is on lockdown. 
why do you think it's okay to go out and try and put on a show, you know, and put athletes in harm's way potentially with, with so many unknowns? Uh, I don't know. I had mixed feelings about it. I felt like there was some, you know, selfishness going on uh, in pushing this as far as they, they, they did. And uh, I think, you know, finally ESPN had to step up and literally pull the plug on it and say, we're not going to broadcast it to get it shut down. But uh, now we're still hearing talks about Fighter Island and all this other crazy stuff. Pandemic Island, I think, is what we what should call it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think we all in this together. So why should anybody be exempt? Uh, she's no different than any of the rest of us you get into a you the conversation is though is it like look within three or four weeks this whole thing could be lifted so why force that that one fight to be in there and put these people at risk and you know our podcast uh producer here he's a big fan of the wwe and they just had wrestlemania with no crowds but one of the people one of the employees ended up getting the covid so that lets you know that like look it takes a lot of people to run these shows, if they're going to be on TV and John and yeah. I talk about this all the time, you're talking over a hundred people easily, even if they downgraded it to below a hundred, which I think would be kind of hard yeah. for a hundred people to run a show. That's not counting the athletes, the wrestlers, the fighters, whatever it is. It's a lot of people to help try and get the, the, this on, on TV. That's it's Something's bound. If something's bound to, to go wrong, I mean, and if that yeah. they're forcing it that much, it just doesn't make sense. Especially knowing that, yeah. Within three weeks, it could all be gone. We could actually be back to normal, you know, within the next couple yeah. of weeks. We ain't going to be back. Well, I was, at, I was at the Arnold Classic, you know. Yeah. I was at the Arnold Classic, which was the first big event to get shut down, to get, you know, and the state wanted to cancel it altogether. Schwarzenegger pushed back. He said, no, all these athletes have trained. They've all, they're all coming here, you know, two days before this is supposed to happen. You can't just cancel it. You know, we're going to have our events. We're just going to cancel the fan fest. We're going to cancel all the fans and sell no tickets. It was weird walking around there, seeing all these athletes perform with no spectators. I think the only event that had any any spectators at all was the actual bodybuilding finale. It was bodybuilding strongman and women's physique or something that was the big finale. They had already sold those tickets. So there was actually fans and, and people in that arena for that event. But all the other ones were empty. It was really, really weird when normally you're used to seeing a couple hundred thousand people yeah. come through that venue over the course of the weekend. So who knows, you know, but Schwarzenegger pushed back a little bit. Uh, and I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say. I didn't feel exposed. You know, everybody was practicing, you know, touching elbows or, or not, you know, not embracing staying, keeping that social distancing thing. Some people were wearing masks. Some people weren't. Again, it's, it's the same thing that every you – know, I walked to the store yesterday. Probably half the people had masks on, half the people didn't. What does the mask really do? Yeah. It, it doesn't protect you from a virus. It may remind you not to touch your face, yeah. but it doesn't really effective in preventing the virus from entering your system. So I don't know. If you're coughing, yeah, it's going to keep you from projecting that to, to everybody else around you. But, uh, you know – I don't know. It's it's tough to decipher what's real, what's not. What's a power grab and, and a money grab and, and all this other stuff and what's what's genuinely precautions to keep people safe. There's a, a very fine line there. 
Yeah, I do see the the mask does pre- uh, prevents a lot of people from touching their face because I was just flipping through stuff the other day uh, at my house through the office, and I'm going, I lick my finger, then touch my face, then you're like thinking uh, to yourself, man. I'm telling you, that's start wearing a mask. I, I put that mask on because I'll put the mask on like if we're riding motorcycles. Uh-huh. That's all I'm doing is touching that thing the whole time as it starts to slide down and picking up. <laughs> that's and true see, as well. No, it's not gonna, nah, it's all. Bullshit. Not all, not all of us, not all of us have a big, big nose like that, though. That's the other thing, John. Yeah, which should keep it up more, right? Uh. You know, one of the things that you know goes on with you're you're uh, doing a lot of commentary for the PFL, and, and you got a couple of great fighters there, but a lot of the fans don't give credit to those guys because they're not in the UFC. What do yeah. you do to try to make people understand how good those guys are? And, and yes, they're on that same level as the top guys. Is there anything that you look at as, hey, this is the thing that needs to be done? Or what do you think about cross-promoting? All those types of things. Well, I, I think you have to check your ego and be willing to, to open up your mind to cross-promotion. Obviously, with free agency and some of the antics and stuff that's gone on with the biggest promotion, Getting a lot of filtered people going into Bellator, going into the PFL. You know, we, we, we have Rory this new season coming up. I mean, we signed some top, top some mar- market guys, market guys that trigger guys that, that people are going to pay attention to. Yeah. And you know, we'll see how those guys fare in the field from, I mean, what we had 16 countries represented in the last season. It's definitely a, a big pool of fighters from all around the globe. And, and it's been fun to watch, but uh, it's, it's hard to get the fans to recognize because it's not the UFC that, that these are real guys and that they're quality. It's just, it takes time to build a brand. It takes time to translate that, that quality to the fan base. I think. How did the, how did this all come about with you working with the PFL? Uh, they approached me after uh Revolution bought out what used to be the World Series of Fighting, and they were looking to change their format and rebrand, and they, they asked me if I'd be interested in trying out commentating for them. They hired me for five events that year uh, to see if it was a fit. They, they were doing you know four-man booth, three-man booth, a whole bunch of different things, trying to feel what they thought was new, exciting, different, and, and uh, so I was kind of part of that process. They liked how I fit in, and... and uh, that next first season came on of the new brand and the whole thing. And, and they asked me to be part of it. Um, they they kind of wanted me to, to be more involved uh, with the fighters, but I wasn't sure about the format, to be honest. And, and I've been pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I mean, you're asking a lot of a fighter to, to turn around and fight five times in, in six months, you know, six or seven months. That's a lot. Yeah. But the, and that was my question, you know, and if I was a younger man, would I have done it? Hell yeah, they'd done it, especially for a million dollars. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, but that was certainly a question. And then to watch those fighters in that first season step up, deal with that adversity, put it on the line each and every time in the regular season and in the playoffs, I mean, it was just fun to watch. It was engaging. Uh, how each one of them took on that adversity and dealt with that adversity was all part of that onion. And, and just made it fun to be a part of. And and I think it's just continuing to grow. And that format is, is a challenge, but it's I think people get it. They like it. And it's going to be fun. Do you think that, because uh, Lance Palmer is there at your gym, correct? What's that? Lance Lance Palmer, he trains out of your facility, correct? He, he did for the yeah. first season. And then the okay. second season, he, he went to Jersey. Okay. 
with Frankie okay. Edgar and, and those guys, uh, and rightly so, more guys uh, at a higher level uh, that he could train with on a regular. Uh, and you can see that, I think, in his performance, in his back-to-back win, his performance, he, his striking got better. He was, he was a better performer, I think, in that second season than he was in that first season. Do you feel that this tournament styles favors wrestlers, though, a lot more than it would someone like that fights a kickboxing style or has more of a neutral MMA style? I think it can. I think uh, because, especially when you're fighting twice in one night, having that ability to, to smother somebody, take somebody down, float over them, not sustain a lot of damage, even though you're still spending some energy, but we're used to that. I mean, heck, the NCAA tournament is one of the most grueling tournaments you know, in wrestling that, that I've ever been a part of. And you're literally in three days wrestling five huge matches mm plus warming up and staying in the zone and all of this stuff, that whole three-day period. I mean, it's grueling. So that wrestling mindset translates well to this format. You're looking at Dagestanis that are doing well, wrestlers like Lance and, and others that are doing well because of that mindset. How has it been, Sean, your partner now, he fought in the first season and then became yeah. the play-by-play. Didn't become a color commentator. He became the play-by-play guy. Yeah, yeah. astonishing, so, astonishing. That's and crazy. He's mental. He is, he is absolutely. <laughs> we, were was, we were telling him he was crazy as hell too, and and he he took it all in stride. He had that style that that lent itself to him being able to do that. He also has a very strong mindset. You know, it, it didn't bother him. It was it was something that used as a pleasant distraction from the waiting game of of fight night and. Uh, I don't know if I could have done it, honestly, but he, he did it. Being able to do it and wanting to do it are two, two totally different things. I don't think I don't know why you would want to do it. I don't know why either. We, uh, for the Connecticut show that was canceled in, in Mohegan Sun, Morrow had ended up getting kidney stones, and they had sat John down and said, hey, John, you're going to have to do Morrow's job, and we'll bring Josh. Josh will be down there calling the fights with you. I was so screwed. <laughs> I was like, I was thinking to myself, John, are you going to be okay with this? Because I'm getting nervous for you. I was like sweating, man. I swear to God, one of the first thoughts that went through my head, and, I, and this is where you know you're, I'm talking about Sean, is like, holy shit, I'm going to make Sean O'Connell look great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, Sean's, of pressure. Sean's really starting to get his feet under him as, as a play-by-play Not guy. Not an easy job. No, it's not. It's not. Absolutely not. So well, I admire how far he's come, and, and he's he's really getting pretty dang good at it, in my opinion. Rogan tells that story about Goldie all the time, how Rogan had to take over Goldie's spot one time because Goldie had an emergency or Goldie couldn't make it uh, to USC one of the 42. Yeah, couldn't make it in Miami. Oh. Miami, so Shirk and uh, Hughes. And, and Rogan had to call, he had to be the play-by-play. And he's like, he when Goldie came out, he's don't ever fucking do that to me again. Don't ever. He's like, I don't want, I don't want this job yeah. at all. So it's one of those stories that Joe, I've heard Joe tell a couple times on his show. It's hilarious, man. I, I, it's it's got to be stressful. It's got to be stressful. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I mean, even just doing the color, and it's a sport that obviously I was involved in and know and, and like talking about. But even doing the color, having somebody talk in your ear while you're oh. trying to expound. <laughs> And stay on task and and be somewhat intelligent. I know that's a stretch, but somewhat intelligent Big while you're stretch. talking. It's a, it's a challenge, man. It's not easy. And now you throw reading cards and getting the right card to be able to do the next bump yeah. to the next thing while you're doing that at the same time. I mean, 
forget it. It's, it's pretty challenging. Yeah, trying to read a card while someone's yelling at you in your ear, and then you're trying yeah, to speak it out while the camera's on you, and people are all staring at you. It's There's a lot going on. I, I mean, I got to tip my hat to all those color guys. I mean, those play-by-play guys. Uh, it's crazy, man. I, there was something I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, you're the 205 champ, heavyweight champ. You know, you. I feel like you were ahead of the curve. You were never a big heavyweight, and you got guys now that I think are having success in the heavyweight division, being wrestlers coming from a wrestling background. You got Bader having success at heavyweight in Bellator. You've got, you know, DC, obviously he can be a heavyweight when he's off season, but he normally walks around about he's a super heavyweight. Right yeah. Now. He's like, he's a big boy right now. It's all about that cake. But DC Kane, those guys are, they were never big heavyweights. You know, Kane only walked around about two thirty-five. Mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he could get up, you know, a little bit yeah. like DC, but he was never a big guy. I mean, I remember uh, one of his fights, he weighed at 232. He said he felt best fighting at like, you know, 228, 232, somewhere in there. DC, same thing. So I yeah. feel like you were ahead of the curve. You were always the small, a little bit of the smaller guy. Tim Sylvia was huge, yeah. big mountain I mean, man. I, I, think, uh, <laughs> I, I think obviously you have to fight the bigger guys smarter. You don't want to go nose to nose and just trade blows with a guy that size. It takes one shot to end your night. And it, I know that firsthand, um, you know, but uh, mobility is a huge factor in fighting in that cage, as you well know. And and I think that's something that the smaller heavyweights bring is that they're a little more agile, a little more athletic than the bigger lumbering guys that they certainly pose interesting problems still. But I think if you make those guys move and, and make that the key of the fight, it, it'll pay off. Certainly as the rounds drag on. Uh, and I think that's the difference. Uh, but that's it. I mean, that's a mindset preparation, studying tape and going in there with, with that in mind, realizing I, I can't stand right in front of this guy and try to go nose to nose. It's going to be a bad night. I got to I got to ask you then there's going to be the rematch with DC and Stipe and you know I know that there was a lot of rumors going around that you know Bader and Stipe had trained they'd done really well and Bader did really well against him how would you see if we were to put a three a three-way fight between Bader and DC and you know and Stipe those three guys if they were mixed all together how would you see a lot of that going down and DC and Stipe are going to fight again I believe in July, uh, July, August I think they said July end of July or August is what they were talking about how do you see the rematch going with that? And how do you see Bader fitting into that? I think, uh, I think Bader would absolutely hold his own. Um, you know, and, and if you look at DC and, and Bader, they're, they're very similar in size, similar in background. Um, I think uh, DC has a little more natural heavy hands. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to see in the rematch with Stipe, if DC make him wrestle more. Oh, that's, yeah. that's the strength. That's the thing, you know. And I know I everyone is telling DC wrestle more. DC's had some success with his hands. I mean, we saw this with Dan Henderson. We've seen this with, you know, uh, Johnny Hendricks. Got these wrestlers that had that knockout or bond that they have that one punch power, and then they kind of start to go and rely on that or want to end fights that way because it's easier. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's easier than grinding it out. It's easier than taking guys down and smothering them and grinding it out. So. They're going to let that fly, but I, I think he definitely has to get back to making Stipe wrestle him. That, that'll that be the difference in the fight. Stipe's done a good job of shoring up his wrestling and making it more of a strength for him. I mean, and, and that's why he's being as, as successful as he is. It'll be interesting to see if Bader can make that transition, compete with both of those guys. I was always more concerned 
fighting another guy that had that strong wrestling background, those strong wrestling roots. Randleman had my undivided attention. I knew that was going to be a tough fight for me. I couldn't go out and get away with the things I was used to getting away with because of my wrestling background. John? You also faced Mike Van Arsdale, which was actually a tough fight for you in the first two rounds. First two rounds. First round was very tough. Second round, it was you were narrowing that gap, but he would pull ahead, and then the third round, I think you finished him off with an anaconda choke. Yep. That's the kind of thing you're talking about. Facing a wrestler, they can create problems for you, but yeah. you you being a guy that you didn't have that big knockout power. You did knock oh. Tim Sylvia on his ass, but anyone, you know, hit it on the right spot can go on their ass. But you had a ability to push a pace on guys and make them fight your style of fight and make them uncomfortable. How much satisfaction did you get in being in there at a certain point knowing, oh, he's breaking? I got that it. was my goal. That was my goal every time I walked up in there. And, and I think that I learned that at Oklahoma State, wrestling for the Cowboys. I think that that's something that was fostered in Greco-Roman wrestling because of the upright posture, the chest-to-chest pummeling. It's not like freestyle where you can bend over and post a guy and, and find a way to rest. You're literally engaged, pummeling and fighting for position the entire time. And and it wears on you. It's a different kind of conditioning. And those were things that I thought I saw as strengths that I could bring in to a fight with a cage, a barrier that I could trap a guy against and make him pummel and make him work, that work harder than he wanted to work. That was my goal every time I walked out there. And, and you know, when it's, when you get it right and it's successful, it's a good night. And, and when you miscalculate it, it's not nearly as fun. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything when you look back on your career, is there anything that you, I don't want to say want to change, but you would – would like to maybe potentially do differently? Like something that you were like, hey, the times are different now. Like would it be something that would be done differently now with the times that are going on now versus back then? You know, I, I don't think I'd change a thing. I think it was all part of this this kind of body of work. It was a progression, a journey where I learned the the losses were probably more important than, than the wins. I never watched the ones I won. I got the outcome I wanted. The ones I lost, I studied the crap out of them because that's where the learning was. That was where I was going to be a better athlete and ultimately a better man at the end of the day was facing that adversity, picking myself up, figuring out where I, where I went astray, what, what was the mistake, what could I do better. I mean, that was all part of the journey. So I, I don't think there's anything I would change. Uh, you know, you mentioned that Baron Arsdale fight. That was the only time I really fought sick. I had that staff in my knee. I had to take prednisone and IV antibiotics three weeks going into that fight. I probably should have pulled out, yeah. uh, but I couldn't force myself to do that. So, uh, you know, I fought anyway, and that was the most tired I have ever been in a fight. And I was going into the third round. We're both exhausted. I've got my hands on my knees. I'm looking over across the cage at Van Arsdale. He's got his hands on his knees, and he's looking at me, and I forced myself to stand up and start bouncing in place and smiled at him. And I saw his face drop. I knew at that moment he was ready to give it up. He was going to be done. Randy, I just want to tell you this. I cornered Van Arzel for that fight. 
And that guy literally told Crazy Bob, just throw the towel in, I'm done. Between that round, second and third round, he said, he said, throw the towel in. I'm not fucking going back out there, Bob. No, you're going to have to get me up off this seat. I'm not going back out there, Bob. And, he, and Bob goes, you get your fucking ass up and go back out there. I just, I, Van, I got three quick flyer miles in that fight. He <laughs> threw me on my ass. That, that hip toss was stellar. Uh, I should have, I should have got a free airline ticket for that one. <laughs> first class, I'm baby. In the first. Of changing headphones. These headphones are gonna die. Okay. No okay. problem. No problem. I'm in the process of uh, doing the succession paperwork, uh, and Ryan is gonna take over the gym extreme oh, nice. tour. Is he gonna take it over now? Yep. He's 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 in line. Good. To, you know, and he moved and left his banking job 12 years ago to come down and run the gym yeah. and ended up fighting. That was kind of my intention then, and I think the time is right. So it's one of the things I felt bad about. We're literally going through the succession paperwork when all this COVID crap broke oh. out and we had to shut the gym down. Damn. Man, what the heck? And he's like, Dad, you're talking me into this? What the heck? Yeah, no, yeah, that's just, yeah here, <laughs> I'm, do, I'm doing burden. you a favor. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, uh, him and Eric do a great job there, man. Yeah, he's they they they're both great guys and yeah, couldn't be prouder uh, of what they put together and and you know I think the gym took a dip when I retired and stopped grinding out camps and stuff and a lot of guys scattered to a bunch of different gyms and you know between Dennis Davis and then Robert Fallis for the time that we had him uh, yeah. with Ryan and Eric's leadership they really kind of re refocused and rebuilt the gym in, in a lot of ways so. Again, another reason why I think it, it, it should roll to him now and let him continue to do what he's been doing while I've been out gallivanting around doing acting jobs and stuff like that. <laughs> you know what? Now You just brought it up with Robert Fallis. Um, talk to me. I wanted to ask you this because we've known Robert for a long time. He fought Trevor Prangley back in Portland on Steve Boyd's yep. show. Um, I remember. One of the cards out there. Remember that? And then um, yep. I was on that card as well. Chael was on that card. Nate Quarry was on that card. Um, he meant how he meant a lot to that gym. He meant a lot to a lot of people there. I mean, you see Kevin yeah. Lee, you know, he was having a hard time dealing with it, and you know, he ended up going out there to Faraz Sahabi's, you know, to 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 try to fill that void. Uh, Nawad Lahad is one of my good buddies. He just said that you know Robert was one of his closest closest friends because I actually yeah. I actually joined the two of them together because uh, Nawad moved out there with his with his wife. And I said, mm -hmm. hey, you got to hit this guy up. You know, he's really good. He's a great person. And uh, he ended up being, and he said, we ended up being really, really close before everything happened. Uh -huh. He goes, how was the dynamic change at the gym? And, you know, what was it like after after that? You know, that someone losing someone you were obviously very close to, but was really yeah, ingrained Robert, in your Robert gym. And I were, Robert and I were friends for over 20 years. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in that same spot, the new odd and, and Kevin Lee and, because he was such a mentor and a positive influence on so many people. And to have somebody like that uh, take their own life w was a shocking thing. It, it was, uh, you know, left you with a lot of questions uh, that survivor's guilt, uh, which is a horrible thing. Well, maybe I could have done something. Maybe I could have said something. Uh, and you have to know Robert and know his background and know where he came from to understand this was something he calculated very, very well. There was nothing any of us could have done to, to yeah. change his mind, unfortunately. Uh, and that goes back to his Jehovah's Witness days and his upbringing. And all, there's a whole bunch of things there that not a lot of people knew, even 
some of his closest friends didn't know that stuff was there. And uh, I think Nate Corey shined a light on some of that in, in the memorial services and stuff that, that I think allowed a lot of people to wrap their brain around it uh, mm -hmm. because he was so positive because he did have such a positive influence on so many people uh, that, that it was devastating to, to have that happen, uh, to have that go down that way. Uh, you know, and, and I think there was some finger pointing and, you know, it, there was a lot of things that happened that, that we just had to be very open, create a, a dialogue and, and, and really kind of let it all hang out there mm. as much as we all loved and respected Robert. His final act was not something that I can abide by. I just, mm. I can't, uh, I can't, I understand. I understand kind of where he ended up and, and why, uh, but I still can't abide by it. And, uh, I just think you take everything that you're struggling with in that circumstance and you pass it off to everybody you love <clears throat> times 10 by that single act. And I just, I can't, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough thing uh, to deal with. I, I think everybody's recovered for the most part. I think we all have found a way to, to deal with it and wrap our yeah. brain around it. You know, Dennis has stepped back up and, and tried to fill that void with the guys. So has Eric Nixick uh, yeah. has really stepped yep. up and, tried to run practices and, and kind of take up that slack that Robert was, was filling when he was there as the coach. So, you know, I, I don't think, you know, we'll always remember him, you know, and I think that's how he lives on yeah. is we honor all those great things, those great words of wisdom, that technique, that coach by carrying on that legacy uh, in, in his remembrance. So. Yeah, I try. I tr there's a couple of things that I had learned along the way um, through life, and someone had talked to me about they had been part of um, suicide in their family, and then the police, and as well as the police officers that were involved in that, and some counselors and city officials that actually called uh, this person and their family and said, "Hey, I want you to remember. I want you to realize this. You need to watch because it was." an older woman who had lost her son to suicide. Yeah. And the, they said, Hey, you need to watch your children because it's contagious that if the father yeah. does it, that somebody in the family will potentially do it. So yeah. you, ha I always try to tell people like, if you are feeling suicidal, you feel like this is something that is, um, that's eaten at you. Just remember that if you have kids there, they, I believe like the, the ratio they said was almost 80% chance that one of your children will do it also. Wow. That that's is ridiculous. So when you I think know this, I know this from the, our veteran community because obviously it's a huge issue. We lose 22 yeah. a day. Every week, somebody in our, in our circle of veterans loses somebody. And there's a ripple effect there, especially with social media and everything. Because yeah. you look at social media and you think, oh, wow, those guys got it made. Look where he's eating. Look mm -hmm. where he's doing. And then something like that happens. And you, you immediately you, you put that on yourself. You're like, mm -hmm. man, I thought, I thought he was doing great. And, and, you know, and, and obviously he isn't or wasn't. Yeah. And, and then you start looking at your own life and the own thing, the things you're struggling with and, and grappling with to get through. And that ripple effect, exactly what you're saying is that suggestion, that power of suggestion is there. And yeah, you do. I, I like to tell people that, you know, I, people are talking about, yeah, I thought people have thought about it or I know people that are thinking about it or they had, and just say it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You know, these are, these are things that I think everyone can get through. You know, it's just yeah. going to take time. You need to have something that you focus on as well as if you have children. Do you want to hand that down to them and then put that responsibility on them as well? Not just the fact that you did it, but there's a good chance that they may end up doing it thinking that it's okay later on down in life. You know, yeah. um, it, it's it's a sad situation to be in, I think. And 
Um, but those kind of things help keep, I think, put things in perspective. You know, if you were thinking about doing it, just remember if you have children that there is potentially a chance that they could do it. And secondly, is the thing that you're dealing with today will not be there tomorrow. And maybe it will, but it won't be as bad as you're feeling right there at that moment. Uh, so those are, those are things. I mean, but on a high note though, how does it feel to know that like a lot of the guys that you would started off working with from Nate, you know, to Nate Corey, to Chael, to Robert Fallis, all of them ended up being pretty successful in everything they did as far as in the yeah. MMA and the fighting community. Cause I remember we, I fought on a lot of those shows and the Steve Boyd yeah. shows in Oregon and up yeah. in there. And we were all on the same card and you guys, it was you, uh, I think Dan and Matt Linland, you guys were sometimes judges for some of the events or there for VIPs. Oh, Jesus. I know. I, <laughs> oh my God. I knew I had to finish the guy cause I didn't want to go into the judges. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, on a, but on yeah. a high note, how does it how does it feel? Like you know, guys like Chael have made a full on career now out of this. I mean, like being an analyst, being a fighter, being an athlete, like you know, always driven. But like you've got all these guys that have were successful and are still doing really well in the in the yeah. open eye. I mean, that's that's the team part of this sport. Everybody thinks of this sport as that individual sport, or you know, you're the guy that walks up in that cage and you're out there by yourself. But there's a huge part of this team. You're only as good as the guys you're rubbing elbows with, and we had an amazing team up there, Team Quest. Yeah. They're an amazing group of guys, all of various levels. But look at how successful a lot of those guys were because of that. We all fed off of each other, taught each other, mentored each other. Uh, and, and I think that that team aspect is what allowed us all the success and longevity that we've had. All right, Randy. Hey, I want to thank you for coming on. And, you know, I want to catch up again as soon as this is all done. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, bud. Pleasure, guys. Good talking to you, brother. You take care of yourself. Yep. See you guys soon.